the book of Jonah is a popular book. It's not like uh, this is probably the first time you've ever heard of the book of Jonah. I think if you're an experienced Christian, you're familiar with the book of Jonah, probably the most popular of the minor prophets. Uh, if you if you look at the list of the minor prophets and you say, which one am I the most interested in? Probably Jonah is the one that at least comes to mind. Uh, most people have Sunday school to thank for that. Usually Sunday school makes sure to cover Jonah very well. Um, and at the same time, I think usually a lot of Sunday school classes, depending on you know how little they are, tend not to get too much into the, uh, the later part of the Jonah story. We usually talk about the fish, and we don't always talk so much about how Jonah actually feels about the grace of God, which is something that comes up in the book. Jonah is known as the reluctant prophet, uh, which I think maybe is putting it lightly. I would call him the rebellious prophet. I think mean, that's maybe a better name for Jonah. Uh, this is a book that's written in the third person. Uh, but since Jonah is alone, this actually may have been written by Jonah in the third person. It's really hard to tell who the author of the book actually is. Um, but one of the questions a lot of people struggle with is this question of, is the book of Jonah uh, a literal history? Is it an allegory? Is it a, is it a story that's meant to sort of have a point, maybe like a parable or something like that? And um, the reason that a lot of people think this about, about Jonah, the reason why some people struggle over whether it's actually historical, is there are things about this book that are different from the others. Um, you know, they find the idea of a fish swallowing a man and him surviving kind of offensive. People say, well, this must not have actually happened since I can't imagine it actually happening. Um, some people think the plant at the end of the book, the idea of a plant growing up so quickly over Jonah and then this worm consuming the plant, they think, well, this doesn't seem very realistic either. Um, and so they try to sort of sort it out. Um, but the reality is this book presents itself as a historical narrative. Um, Jonah was a historical figure. He actually shows up in, in the book of Second Kings chapter 14. Uh, it talks about the fact that there is, a, there is a prophet named Joseph, the son of Amittai, who's actually in the, the north preaching against Jeroboam II. So we know that he's a real historical person. So it would be very odd for them to write a parable or a, just a story about somebody who is an actual historical figure. Um, Jonah is one of the few prophets who actually writes in the northern kingdom. Now, as far as the story goes, so, so I'm convinced Jonah's real. I'm convinced Jonah is historical. Um, Only oh, the, other, the other thing some people find implausible is the idea that the city of Nineveh would, would repent. The idea that Nineveh would actually turn and follow the Lord, they just say that that's not possible. You know, same people who say Kanye West couldn't possibly. I, I didn't do it last week. I didn't say anything last week because I thought all the preachers are talking about Kanye West this week. Now, now that it's not cool, I'm mentioning it. Um, the, uh, the historical situation in Israel, maybe you're going, what on earth is this? Well, this is, this is a picture of Israel at the time that Jonah's written. If you, if you remember, Israel was unified under David and under uh, or a Saul and under David and under Solomon. And then there's a split between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. So you've got Judah down here, and then you've got the rest of the tribes of Israel. They follow Jeroboam in the north. So there's a civil war, basically. The split happens. And this is where we find ourselves right now. The northern kingdom still exists, and it hasn't fallen yet. Uh, who remembers the date when the northern kingdom falls? Probably one of you guys, right? You remember the number? You guys remember the number? Ah, 586 is when the southern kingdom falls. 
But the number's bigger for the northern kingdom. You remember in the northern one? Seven twenty-two BC is when the north falls. So here's what happens. Who who crushes the northern kingdom? Assyria does it. Okay, so they get dragged away to Assyria, and the northern kingdom is destroyed in 722. So in this book, in Jonah, the northern kingdom still exists. The historical situation is such that they are right here around... <laughs> um, we're giving you a rough time period because we don't know the exact date of, of, uh, of Jonah. But we do know that this is a, he's, a, he's a prophet to the north. We know that he's there before the northern kingdom actually falls. And, uh, and so that, that roughly situates us, at least, in the world scene. Judah's still around. Israel's still around. And Israel is heading towards a cliff. They're not doing well. And they're eventually going to, to walk away from the Lord. And then the Assyrians are going to destroy Damascus a few years later. So the historical context of this, though, is not the northern kingdom necessarily. It's actually another nation that's far off. These guys, the guys who are going to eventually destroy them. Nineveh. Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. These are the archetypal enemies of God's people. These are the people that are the bad guy, bad guys. They're the, they're the worst, basically. They, they would do terrible things when they would conquer territories. Um, they would strip their enemies, and then they would put them on a long pole and skewer them, basically, and they would do it to them alive. It was sort of a prototype of, of crucifixion. You know, you see the Romans do it later, but this is that slow, long, drawn-out, terrible death that, um, you know, just a horrifying type of torture. They would drag their captives away with, with fish hooks, um, and they did these things to the Israelites, too. When they were in conflict with them, they would treat them this way as well. And so Jonah is called to preach to these people. This is the people that, they're supposed, that he's supposed to preach to. And he's supposed to call them to repentance. That's the job of this prophet. And it helps us sort of understand Jonah's actions later when we see how Jonah responds to the call. And in fact, at this point now, we're going to start reading. Um, So I would recommend that you have your Bible open to Jonah chapter 1. I'm going to volunteer to read the first two verses of Jonah. John, have you got it? You want to read it? Do you love the app? Do you love the app? I would love it if this went away. Okay, Jonah, you'll be glad to read. All right, just two, just the first two verses. One. Yep. Now the word of Jonah came up, came unto Jonah the son of uh, Mittai, saying, "Arise, go to Nineveh, the great that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness is come up before me." All right. So God tells Jonah, go to Nineveh, go to that city. I have seen their wickedness. And he doesn't actually say there's something unspoken here, isn't there? What's the unspoken thing that you're going to be doing? You're going to cry out against that city, but what is the unspoken outcome? Hopefully. What's that? Repentance. Yeah, repentance. You know, hopefully the city's going to repent. That's the unspoken thing here. Um, so then, uh, let's see, Amy, would you read verse 3? But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish, Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. 
So we paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. All right, Tarshish, we don't 100% know exactly where Tarshish is. Um, and also, Tarshish is just hard to say. Try saying it three times fast. It doesn't work very well. I think that was its undoing. You need to find a city's name that you can actually pronounce. You know, We'd still have it around if only you could say it as easily as Rome. It could have been the next Rome if they just made their city pronounceable. Pearl. This is going to be a very successful city. Pearl. Um, Tarshish is probably, historians think that it's in the inner region of Spain. So when you're, when you're thinking about Tarshish, don't think of somewhere close by that just isn't Nineveh. Think opposite side of the planet. This is the other side of the world. As far as somebody who lives in the Mediterranean, you're talking about going to the opposite side of the Mediterranean as far away as possible. So this guy is not exactly the next Moses. You know, he, he's not in line to just blow our minds with his service as a prophet here. Um, so now I'd like somebody to read a pretty good chunk. I need, to, I need somebody who's really in, in for the long haul. Somebody read verses 4 to 16. David, you look like you're ready. I saw your face. You made a face. It was a happy face. Four to sixteen. Four to sixteen. Yeah. What happens here? Okay. Chapter verses four to sixteen, not chapter four. Well, there's not that many chapters in the book. Yeah. I would like you to read Jonah chapter sixteen. I want to know what happens after everything. Yeah. yeah. It's the sequel. Uh, but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots. And the lot fell on Jonah. And they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. All right, excellent. So they, they, they ask, who is Jonah's God? That's what they want to know. And remember, in their context, you have a god over everything. You know, regional gods over a certain area. You have a god who's in charge of the land. You have a god in charge of the sea. And they find out that Yahweh is the god of heaven and earth. 
the sea and all that is in them, and they are completely mortified because they, they basically say to themselves, what kind of a, a deity have we angered here? We've, we've made the worst kind of deity that we could, ma- we could make mad angry. But I want you to notice the way that the, that the, that the sailors react. Um, Amos, do you have your Bible open back there? Oh, okay, Genesis, you got it? Would you read verse 5 for us again? Just, just the part where it says what the mariners, how they reacted. Okay, that's good. So what did it say, though? It said that they were what? They were afraid. And then, go down to verse 16. Genesis, you still have, your, you have it open. And then read what they, it says about the men in verse 16. Okay, you've got that Holman translation, don't you? So mine says, they feared the Lord exceedingly. So before they were afraid... Then after God stills the wind and the waves, then they're really afraid. Their, fra- their fear is actually greater after they meet God and after he brings a rescue than there were before when they were in trouble. Which I think is, is utterly a sign that you have actually met God. <laughs> that you've actually met God is that, oh wow, uh, something about the holiness of God comes through here in the way that they, that they, that they react here. Because they say, wow, what a holy God that they would that this would happen. And then it says they offered sacrifice to the Lord and took vows. You find all these different commentators sort of talking about what they think actually happens here. I I think they are basically converts at this point because it doesn't just say they made sacrifices to God. What does it say? It says they made sacrifices to the Lord. So this is Yahweh that they're actually worshiping now. Uh, Before they were just, they were just scooting through life sailing through life. <laughs> they were just sailing through life before, and now here they are, and now they fear Yahweh, they sacrifice to Yahweh, and they took vows, which, which means they're going to live their lives differently because of what's happened to them here. Now, it doesn't say, well, they came and joined the people of Israel. It doesn't say that they started practicing all the things that we know in Judaism, but these are God-fearing Gentiles now. They, they, something very tremendous has happened to them. Um, so now let's go to Jonah 1, 17. Just one verse. Does somebody read that? The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Okay. Now, so this is another one of those things. Some people are skeptical. They say, look, how could this, po- how could this be possible? Uh, there aren't fish that big. Uh, they tend to be mammals, not fish. Uh, you know? <laughs> There, there are fish that big. How can a human being stay alive inside of a fish for three days? How can there be that much oxygen? How can he be kept alive? And, and the reality is this. We can't imagine a natural process by which a fish has a mouth that big. It can eat a man without, without crushing him. Or a guy can stay alive in their stomach without being digested by the stomach acids or anything like that. Um, you can't also imagine a universe coming out of nothing naturally. Right? You can't imagine there being nothing, and then one day, without anyone's, anyone's work or, or, or speaking, everything suddenly springing into existence. I also cannot conceive of that. And so a universe where something exists and nothing does, and nothing does not exist, it is just as feasible <laughs> that, that uh, this fish would also be capable of keeping a man alive for three days. All God has to do is speak, and oxygen appears in the stomach of the fish, and then he's got a block that keeps the acids from dissolving poor Jonah. 
Um, or maybe, his, I don't know, maybe his clothes all got dissolved. Who knows? But in either case, this is not nearly the problem, I think, that now, if you want to read the Bible and say, well, there has to be a natural explanation for it, then you are going to be out of luck. You're not going to be able to come up with a solution, I don't think. Uh, but the reality is we live in a supernatural universe where God created, um, where there is sunlight outside rather than nothing, uh, where God spoke and everything exists. So this is not nearly the problem that, I guess, it's a worldview problem, really. Do you live in a universe where you discount the possibility of God's existence? If you do, this will be a struggle, a struggle to appreciate what's going on here. Um, now, here's what happens, though. The story shifts. Before we were with Jonah, we were on the boat. We are figuring out how does he get out of this problem. And now the narrative moves to the belly of the fish. And that's what chapter 2 is. Chapter 2 is this beautiful song where Jonah finally submits to the will of God. And I, I need a volunteer to read chapter 2, verses 1 to 9. Grant, are you able? All right. One through nine? Yeah. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the fish's belly. And he said, I cried out to the Lord because of my affliction, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your billows and your waves passed over me. And I said, I have been cast out of your sight. Yet I will look again towards your holy temple. The waters surrounded me even to my soul. The deep closed around me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I went down to the moorings of the mountains. The earth with its bars closed behind me forever. Yet you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer went up to you into your holy temple. Those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy, but I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay what I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. And then it says, the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah on dry land. So, you have this confession by Jonah. At first, he's saying where he's where he's praying from. He's talking about the really the desperation of his situation. I think all of us would admit, if you find yourself in the belly of a fish, you think, I only have a limited amount of time here. This is not going to last for very long. And so here he is. He's, he's in the belly of this fish. His, the billows and waves are crashing over him. He is brought as low as he possibly could. And then he makes this statement, and it's at the very end. He says, salvation is of the Lord. Now, I remember uh, in Hebrew class, by the way, uh, between me and and Levi, you don't want to have a Hebrew contest because Levi's going to smash me. He got like 102 or something in Hebrew, and I did not. So (laughs) you go to him for your Hebrew questions. But I remember in Hebrew class, Miles Miles Van Pelt made us memorize uh, a section from from Jonah chapter 2. And I don't know how, the only thing I can remember that stuck with me is this phrase, Lashuatha Yahweh. And that is that phrase, salvation is of the Lord. That's the one that stuck with me. Yeshuatha Yahweh. And now listen to the beginning of that though. Yeshuatha. That is the name of Jesus. Yeshua. The name Joshua means salvation. 
the name Jesus is a transliteration of Joshua. Um, and that's exactly what, what uh, Jonah gets to at this point. At the, at the very end, what does he do? Um, he's not intentionally speaking the name of Jesus, but he does. He says, salvation is of the Lord. And that's what God does. He brings him to the point where he's willing to say, God, you are allowed to save whoever you want. And he wasn't willing to say it before. Before, he would not say these, those words, salvation is of the Lord, and now he will. And it changes how he thinks about the people in Nineveh. It changes how he thinks about the rest of the people in the world. And now he says, you know what, God, you do have the right to go to the Assyrians. You do have the right to rescue those people if that's your will. And God brings him to the point where he's willing to say that before he's actually able to use him. Now, I would also like somebody to read Jonah chapter 3, the first five verses of Jonah chapter 3. I'll read it. All right, Jake. And the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against the message the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three-day journey. I guess I should have brought my glasses, but I breathe it. Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days Nineveh shall be overthrown, and the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to police them. Uh, what do you think of the sermon length? <laughs> <laughs> Just depends. It's on the sermon, right? <laughs> I... If, if, I don't know if I'd want to listen to a very long sermon by Jonah. If you, if you hear a sermon that's very reluctantly preached, you probably want it to be as short as possible. Um, yeah, what does he say? Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. He doesn't, even give, he doesn't even give the imperative. All the sermon is is indicative. He's just telling them the way that things are. 40 days, Nineveh's going to be overthrown. He, he, God uses these few words that Jonah utters to spark the consciences of these people, to make them remember all the things that they've done wrong. There's no accusation even in the text. The people of Nineveh seem to recognize immediately there is something in our lives and in our behavior that has caused this situation where we're about to die. So they don't even need Jonah to fill in the gaps. They are already jumpy. They are already aware of themselves and their own hearts. It's almost like they were already on edge and all it took was Jonah just just saying these few words and it just pushes them off. It just, and everything starts to fall into place. It's like the dominoes start to tumble over. All it took was one person saying, this is it. This is it. This is the end of your civilization. And that's all it takes. Um, it says they believe God, they call to fast, they put on sackcloth. Now, uh, would somebody read verses 6 to 10? How does, the, how does God use this half-hearted sermon? We'll find out here. The word reached to the king of Nineveh, and he rose from the throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes, and then issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink. 
But let the man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil, <coughs> away from the violence that is in his hands. How far? Uh, to verse 10. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, they turned from their evil way. God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. So they hear the judgment coming, and they believe, and they respond. So when you, um, when you hear this, I don't mean... Don't put yourself in, in Jonah's shoes at the moment, but just you as a 21st century Christian sitting uh, in here in a church and you're reading these words. When you see the city turning and repenting, what's what's your response? I, I would like to hear how you feel about this. I'm rejoicing that they could believe it. Okay, you're happy. It's good. This is a good thing. Gives you hope. And it can happen again. Yeah, it's more feelings when you think about today, crime documentaries are really big, right? And you hear about the wicked things someone's done. And then a lot of times those people do at times offer some apologies. Now, whether they're sincere or not, we don't know. Mm -hmm. But you can just imagine some of those same hesitancies uh, for people to actually forgive or accept that that person may or may not Mm -hmm. have actually changed. I remember... As a teenager, did any of you, were any of you subjected to, and I'm going to use that, yeah, use it loosely, were any of you subjected to David, uh, James Dobson's interview with, uh, um, Je- uh, not Jeffrey Dahmer, who's the guy that he interviewed? Does anyone remember? <laughs> uh, he was the other guy who was in the 80s, and he was, what's that? <clears throat> that would be a really interesting interview. Um... <laughs> Actually, it wouldn't be. It'd just be weird. Uh, no, it was this other serial killer. And now his, his brain, his name is slipping my mind. He was a, a famous serial killer. Um, uh, not, not BTK? No, it wasn't BTK, no. But anyway, I remember as a teenager watching this documentary. And the reason was because this guy had claimed that he had become a Christian while he was in prison. And he wanted young people to hear his story and be warned about the dangers of pornography. He actually talked about how he became a serial killer, in part at least because of his exposure to pornography when he was a teenager. And he gave this interview, and you just finish the interview and go, I wonder. Like, you just, I don't know. Maybe he got saved. Or maybe he's trying to trying to get some relief, you know, from the courts and he's trying to show he's Ted Bundy, thank you. That's gonna drive me crazy. And the interview he did with Ted Bundy was, I think it was a few days before he was executed. It was right before his execution. Um, and I, to this day, just go, I wonder if someone like Ted Bundy could have his heart changed. Now, on the one hand, I think to myself, that's just because you don't think you're bad enough, Adam. Like, maybe that's my first response. I just need to have a lower view of my own heart. Because I think that I could be saved. 
but I hesitate to think Ted Bundy could be saved. Um, in fact, I was just listening to James James Corden, you know, the late late night host, and he was sitting down with with Kanye West on the plane, and he was saying, "What do you say to people who have looked at the last five ten years of your life and they say, how could this guy be a Christian now? How could this guy suddenly be all religious and have his life turned around?" And Kanye said, well, I mean, this is as real as you waking up from sleep. You know when you're asleep and you know when you're awake. He says, it's the difference of night and day. And he said, I'm awake now. This is what being awake feels like. And, and you know, the reality is if there's anybody in our life that we listen to or that we see that they become a Christian or whatever, and we hesitate to think that that could possibly be real, we need to have another gut check. And we need to look at ourselves and say, do you really think that you could be saved? Because you're maybe. <laughs> yeah, you think you're good enough, right? You've kept it pretty clean. You just needed a little little polishing, you know? Sometimes we can believe that about ourselves. And I think that's what Jonah experiences here because look at what happens in verses 1 to 4. So, you know, our objectively, or at least we say, this is something that you should rejoice over. And yet, um, John, do you have verses 1 to 4? Chapter three now. Uh, chapter four, verses one to four. Yeah, sure. <clears throat> but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed unto Jehovah and said, I pray, I prayed thee, O Jehovah, was not this my saying when I was yet in my country? Therefore I hastened to flee unto Tarshish, for I knew that thou art a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and repentest thee of the evil. Are we going through four? Uh, verse four, yeah. Okay. Therefore now, O Jehovah, take, I beseech thee, my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And Jehovah said, Dost thou dwell, dost thou, excuse me, dost thou well to be angry? Yeah, God asked him, is it right for you to be angry? Is it right for you to be angry? It's so interesting, right? You see this merciful thing happen. You see this beautiful expression of God's grace. He'll save an, a city of people who would do this kind of, of horrible stuff to their, their enemies. And, and, and Jonah is angry. And he says his reason why. He says, I fled from Tarshish. If you wonder why, because he doesn't say it first. You don't find out why he fled to Tarshish until later on. He says, I fled to Tarshish for I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness. And this is just one of those moments where you realize even a child of God can hate the grace of God. Even somebody who has experienced the grace of God can utterly despise it and be very selective in how he wants God's grace to be poured out on other people. And then at the end, verses 5 to 11, uh, Willie Ray, would you, would you read the last verses for us? Okay. Verses 5 to 11 of chapter 4. Then Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it. There he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen to the city. So the Lord God appointed a plant and it grew up over Jonah to shade over the head and to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. But God also appointed a worm when dawn came the next day, and it attacked the plant, and it withered. And it came about that when the sun came up, that God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint, <coughs> and begged with all his soul to die. 
saying, Death is better for me than life. Then God said to Jonah, Do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? And he said, I have good reason to be angry even to death. Then the Lord said, You had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. And should I not have compassion on Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand as well as many animals? I just love that ending. And much and my my version says, and much livestock. Like there are ten thousand twenty thousand people here and much livestock. Like these cows matter too. Well, yeah, I got the New King James. I got my uh this was my first Bible I got after I became a Christian. I've had this for a very long time, my New Geneva study Bible. I don't use my New King James very often. You gotta gotta use it every now and then. Um, the thing that stands out to me when I read this is these two times when God asks him if he's right to be angry. The first time he asks him in verse 4, he says, is it right for you to be angry? What's he angry about in verse 4? He's angry that they repented. And then in verse 9, he says, is it right for you to be angry? And what's he asking him about? about he's asking him about the plant. What is the thing that makes these two situations different from each other? Or maybe let's ask it this way. What's the similarity between the plant and what happened to Nineveh? Well, the plant sheltered him from his problems. Yeah, it said he was grateful for the plant. The so there's, there, there, there's mercy in both of these, right? God extends mercy with, uh, to Nineveh. Perfect, yeah. He decided they deserve to die. He decided he doesn't deserve to be hot. <laughs> you know like it's just like you need to get a they needed to make some mirrors back then um that's what jonah really needed um and that's what happens right god says you don't have a right to be angry in either of these situations i'm free to be kind to these people and i am free to give and take away from you jonah you don't live a life where you just get and get and get. You, he's trying to strip Jonah of his sense of entitlement, really, uh, which he's got a lot of. He's sort of taking his own status as a covenant child of God for granted, I think. Another irony of is God using a worm to, to do something. To, to make him so miserable. <laughs> yeah, this one little worm could make your day so bad. There's probably something there, too. Um, <laughs> um one of the big themes of this book is this idea of God's compassion. And the big thing that you see here is that God's compassion is not limited to one set uh, ethnic group, right? God's compassion isn't just for the Jewish people. It's not just limited to Israel. Um, they were not being a witness to the nations because they were living in disobedience as well. Israel was. Israel wasn't living up to their side of the bargain. They weren't a light to the nations. They weren't proclaiming the word, and then even when they had opportunities where God basically forces them to, they're like, they're like, no, we don't want this. And this just shows us that God has compassion for the nations. This is a very consistent theme in the Old Testament, um, this idea that God doesn't just show compassion on Israel, but he shows compassion all outside of it too. One of the things in the Old Testament prophets is you see God talking to Babylon, 
in, uh, in Daniel. You see him talking to Edom. You see him talking uh, to the Assyrians here in Jonah. You've got these different nations outside of Israel, and God has a word for them. He does the same thing in Jeremiah and Isaiah. Both of those books have extended sections that are not written to Israel. They're written to these other nations outside of Israel. And so he has compassion on these other nations, and he has compassion on the prophet too. So that's one of the big themes is God's compassion. Another theme is Jonah's sin. Um, Jonah is full of hatred for the Ninevites. Now, um, not, not, not being critical because I don't know how it gets taught here, but typically in a Sunday school class, when, when people are teaching and they say, why didn't Jonah, why did Jonah run away? What is it that at least I, I remember being taught why Jonah ran away? Why were you taught that Jonah ran away? Or why would you think Jonah ran away in Sunday school? He didn't want him to be saved. Well, is that what, well, I mean, maybe you had a good Sunday school teacher. What's that? They were enemies of Israel. He didn't want them to be saved. Well, that's a good reason. That's the reason why. When, yeah, so there's a fear of failure. There's a fear that, that they might hurt you, right? Like, like when I was a kid and I read Jonah, I thought, well, he's afraid to go into that city because he thinks they're going to beat him up or something. You know, he's afraid that they're going to kill him or, or he's going to get strung up or something like that. But, he, but that's not why. In Sunday school, we typically don't get to chapter four. Chapter four is where we find out his motivation for running, right? I know that you are a gracious and merciful God. That's why he ran. It didn't have anything to do with Nineveh. It had to do with God. He doesn't like this thing about God. And he's afraid of what's going to happen if it actually gets extended to these other people. Um, so he's not afraid that, that God's, he's afraid God's not going to hurt them, right? He's not afraid they're going to hurt him. He's afraid God's not going to hurt them. Um, he loves the mercy of Yahweh when it's for him and when it's for his people and not so much when it's for his enemies. And so Jesus, what does he do? He tells us to love our enemies, which is much harder to do in real life. It's much more difficult if you've got real enemies to actually love them. Um, and at the end of the book, he went to sit down. Why? Because he was waiting for the hellfire to rain down. Uh, he, he says he made a shelter, sat under it till I might see what could become of the, what would become of the city. So he's still thinking, yes, they're repenting, but God surely won't do this. And he, and he does. So this book gives us a very, very honest look at, at, at the heart of the prophet. The thing about prophets is these are fully orbed human beings. They are people with feelings and emotions. They're just like you and me. They're just God's just making them do things. <laughs> That's the difference between them and us. God is making them do things. Uh, prophets are very, very uh, reticent to actually do the things they're called to do. If you look at Isaiah, Isaiah is called, and what does he do? He gets called to do something he hates. He's going to have to preach to people who are going to hate everything he has to say. And he gets told up front that that's what it's going to be like. Um, you look at Jeremiah, and God calls Jeremiah, and he makes his life misery, right? Jeremiah uh, doesn't ever get married. He lives a celibate life. Because, and why does that happen? Because God wants everybody to know how barren life is uh, without him. He wants them to realize that, that Israel's not going to be fruitful, so he makes them live a celibate lifestyle. Uh, do you think Jeremiah wanted that? Probably not. I mean, probably not. Isaiah had a family. No family for Jeremiah. Uh, no family for Jeremiah. Um, there are other things that Jeremiah has to act out, and just kind of gross stuff that he has to do. Like he has to 
cook dung over a fire and stuff like that. And everybody's supposed to watch, and then he's supposed to, when they come around, he's supposed to give them a sermon, you know? Uh, being a, a prophet stinks. Actually, that's literally in that case with Jeremiah. Um, but here's the thing. I suppose this is the, re- the, the thing for us to each reflect on. Do we only love God's mercy when it's for us? Or do we love God's mercy for other people too? Um, do we yearn to see even our enemies turn to Christ? Uh, would we rejoice to see the people who made our childhoods miserable? Think back to the bullies in school or think back to the mean, nasty girl that made your life so miserable or, or whatever. Uh, would you be glad to see these people turn to Jesus now? And then the other side of it is, do we see our own hearts as bad as Nineveh? Do we see Nineveh when we look in here? And do we react with shock <laughs> that something good has happened in here, if it has? Um, do we see the mercy of Jesus as being truly undeserved? Or do we have a little bit of Jonah complex where we despise God's grace because we've forgotten how much we need it? Let's pray. Father, you are gracious and compassionate, full of loving kindness. Would you strike our hearts with the sense of our own badness, of your absolute goodness, and of all the mercy that you have for us in your Son? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.